This is Energy Voice Out Loud, leading the global energy conversation. I'm Alistair Thomas, and welcome to our podcast. I'm joined this week by content editor Andrew Dykes, and back from Adepec, back from the desert, is emerging markets editor Ed Reed. How uh, how was it, Ed? Hot. <laughs> you heard it here first. Hot mostly, but there were there. It, there were there were also like thousands. I don't know quite what the what the numbers ended up being, but uh, I think it's probably the biggest conference I've ever been to. It was really. It was just overwhelming. Just like there was a big exhibition and just sort of trying to get, obviously, sort of trying to get from stand to stand and just essentially it was a bit like you know those those videos you see of sort of salmon trying to swim uphill. <laughs> um, it, it it felt very much like that. Wow. I was about to say they're gonna they're gonna put the biggest conference I've ever seen on the posters. I don't know that they'll put. It's a bit like being a salmon, <laughs> <laughs> squished like sardines. Yeah. Oh well. Um. Good for you, Ed. It's been raining torrentially in Scotland, but never mind. Um. I'm glad you had a good. Well. Don't if you had a good time but it sounds like an interesting one anyway um but anyway uh, only one place to start really this week uh, obviously we've had the the horrific images emerging from israel and palestine we've seen also seen some disruption in the baltic uh, this week as well so let's just start with the former um ed obviously a horrendous human cost here but uh, plenty of energy implications of this conflict as well yeah so i mean i think i think you know as you say um obviously really horrendous scenes um in 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 that sort of a the 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 attack in israel that we saw on the weekend and 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 obviously you know israel sort of you know now taking steps to strike back and obviously we're kind of of seeing how that's kind of playing out but i think yeah there is there is clearly an energy i mean obviously as as always is the case with these things you know the the whenever there's kind of uh violence obviously oil prices go up it doesn't feel immediately that there's going to be a big oil impact. Um, I think obviously there's kind of a question in the ra- there around uh, whether Iran, you know, whether Iran is implicated. To what extent Iran knew was involved in the planning uh, with 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 Hamas of that attack. If there if the, if if evidence does emerge and it, it seems unclear at the moment, um, then there may be some sort of um, you know Israeli action against Iran. Obviously, that's 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 unclear at the moment. But I think what we have seen is is kind of um, some quite interesting changes in the in uh, gas flows. So. Following the uh, the attack, um, Israel essentially sort of you know went into a sort of an emergency mode and, and, and told Chevron, the operator of the Tamar platform, to uh, to, to halt production. Um, I think the the, the thing to, to bear in mind here is that Israel has gone from being a sort of a, a net energy importer to essentially exporting this gas uh, to its neighbours, Egypt, Jordan, um, and so the um, there's been a sort of a, a knock on impact in terms of Egypt and 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 quite how Egypt sees its uh, its sort of gas future. Obviously, Europe heading into winter, we're gonna you know need to 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 ramp up imports, although obviously storage is looking pretty healthy, but one of the big hopes was was around sort of LNG from 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 Egypt into into Europe. Egypt um very much a sort of a, a seasonal sort of uh producer sort of uh demand sort of center. So in the summer it's 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 consumption goes up. So at that point it's LNG uh supplies fall. The hope was obviously that going into in, in into autumn and winter uh local demand would 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 fall and then Egypt could start really sort of exporting some of that gas into Europe. That now seems unlikely. Um, obviously, um, there's the kind of a real kind of question there around, you know, to what extent can Egypt satisfy its domestic needs? Would Egypt be prepared to impose rationing on its own population? 
in order to uh, export LNG. It has in the past. It, it, it you know may consider doing that again, depending on the sort of the level of prices that it may be able to achieve from uh, from its uh, exports. And then also, as 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 you mentioned, just sort of the other piece of the puzzle is that the same weekend that uh, this incredible sort of terrorist atrocity happened in Israel. Something happened um, offshore Finland uh, with the uh, with the Baltic connector, which uh, links Finland and Estonia. It's not clear quite what happened initially. There were some reports of a leak, but in the a couple of days later, there was um, a suggestion from the prime minister saying that um, essentially he 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 was pointing the finger at external activity, obviously kind of raising that kind of uh, spectre of some sort of Nord Stream type sabotage. There are some uh, reports from uh, from sort of Finnish um, seismologists. Is it seismologists? I hope so. I think you've got it right there, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm taking a swing. I will see how it goes. If you're a <laughs> seismologist, uh, or if I've got that wrong, please write in and let me know, out loud at energyvoice.com. Um, uh, saying that that they detected a sort of a, a sort of a, a 1.0 uh, event on the Richter scale at the site where uh, this Baltic connector crossed uh, the Nord Stream 1 pipeline. Um, And so obviously there was a suggestion that might suggest a bomb. So it's 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 been a, a weekend where the supply picture for Europe. I mean, obviously, it, it feels uh, inappropriate to kind of you know bring that up given these these sort of you know terrorist atrocities. But obviously, there is this sort of looking forwards into to to to, to Europe's uh, gas sort of supplies. It feels like the that this weekend has has really thrown up some some new uncertainties around supplies into Europe. Um, obviously, from uh, from from the Mediterranean and, and and also kind of maybe new demand, additional demand coming from sort of Finland and the Baltics. So yes, it's 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 been a been a been a, been a tricky uh, week. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, and just maybe going back to the the, se- the section in the Middle East, and I noticed the the the, the news around. Chevron and uh, is it the Tamar field? I mean, you were talking about you know so much of this is kind of being exported now, Ed, in terms of the the gas. There isn't any kind of immediate domestic energy uh, issues for Israel as as regards to this specifically. Obviously, there's a whole catalogue of other um, more pressing issues, I should say. But uh, in terms of energy, that that's that's not necessarily the primary concern. No, so so Israel is still uh, very well situated in 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 terms of supplies. It does have other uh, fields in uh, in in that East Med region, uh, Leviathan, for instance. So that's still going on. Obviously, I think there is kind of a question around, um, I suppose, quite why Israel took the decision to shut in. I mean, uh, those supplies from that Chevron platform, there have been some uh, problems in the past. There have been sort of, you know, potential sort of drone or missile uh, attempts, should we say, um, from sort of Hamas, Hezbollah on some of these facilities. None of them have actually kind of come to fruition, but it is one of those things that every now and then it's kind of raised as a concern. So it may be some kind of concern around security. Uh, So obviously we're going to... Keep an eye on that one, and obviously those um, those, those those companies working in the East Med, such as Energy, and we'll be keep watching that very closely. It, it, it should be noted that um, Israel's um, sort of anti-missile system does extend to these platforms. Obviously, Israel seeing these uh, natural gas uh, facilities as part of its sort of energy security place. So, obviously, that's going kind to of be critical for Israel. 
but uh, thus far, no signs that uh, that that, that Israel is going to face an energy crisis. Okay, and then I just maybe the last thing we should maybe mention. Uh, obviously, this is kind of steeped in very difficult and, and complicated history. But uh, you know, for the people in the Gaza Strip, from what from what I gather, about two million people under under siege now. They're kind of without utilities, without energy, and. and Really, quite a concerning situation for them. Yes, I mean, I, I think this is, this is very much clearly the knock-on impact of of that Hamas attack. Is obviously, you know, as is always the case, it seems with these things, it's it's really the sort of uh, civilians who kind of bear the brunt of the uh, of, of 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 the impact, right? Whether that's in Israel or in in Gaza. So yes, yeah, so uh, Israel has, has has taken some steps to effectively make life uh, unpleasant in in Gaza. It's sort of said, you know, kind of get out of Gaza while you can. That's going to be a challenge for. people people living in that part of the world who have very few options in terms of sort of uh, getting away from Gaza. The, the, the Essentially, the border crossings into places like Egypt are either closed or, or, or heavily controlled. So, yeah, there are some big concerns there. I, I mean, I think you know there, there there has been discussions in the past around um, some some you know whether you know Gaza may be able to press ahead with its own offshore uh, you know energy plans. I think it's is it Gaza Marine was is an old BG find from a few years ago that they've sort of sporadically talked about developing, but. Obviously, with uh, with with this sort of latest kind of conflagration, that now seems unlikely. I mean, it should be noted that um, another sort of potential sort of hotspot is, is is Lebanon. So 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 Lebanon, obviously, also in a dispute with uh, with Israel. In essentially all spaces apart from, they managed to reach a deal on the on the offshore. And uh, Total began drilling a, a, a well um, in a block off Lebanon, it, very close to the Israeli border. Essentially, that that high level kind of governance agreement allowing that drilling to go ahead. As I understand it, for the moment, that drilling is still underway, um, and obviously that could be a game changer for Lebanon. But again, it's kind of a question of development. You know, could they develop such a find? Given those kind of local security issues, it would be it would be an amazing step for Lebanon, but obviously um, it, it, it seems uh, unlikely at the moment. For even if there is success offshore, that they would actually uh, be able to develop it. So, yeah, it's been it's been it's been uh, a, a rough week in in so many ways for uh, for, for inhabitants of the East Med. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, well, thanks, Ed. I'm sure there'll be more coming out of uh, the Med, and and indeed we'll hear more about the Baltic. In the coming days, uh, next we'll be on to new ways to tackle the big offshore emissions problem. In a world where the scarcity of key resources is starting to be felt and the impact of climate change is all too apparent, sustainable growth is no longer a choice, it is a necessity. Sustainable Growth Voice is a new online publication championing individuals and organisations that are pushing sustainable growth forward, making a positive impact on the environment, society and the economy. From innovative technologies solving sustainability challenges to social enterprises promoting inclusive growth and transformative policy initiatives, SG Voice covers the fundamental drivers at the heart of the new sustainable economy. Join the conversation that the world needs now. Visit SG Voice for knowledge, inspiration and insight from across the sustainable growth landscape. Okay, so... Offshore emissions, we've been talking about this an awful lot in the North Sea. There's been a lot of uh, negative sentiment, I think it's fair to say, around electrification. Very costly, very complicated indeed. 
All the while, we've got these looming emissions targets for UK operators. They need to cut their emissions by 50% against the 2018 baseline by the year 2030. Uh, we heard today, in fact, the UK emissions report that they've managed to get about halfway there. But that's the low-hanging fruit. There's some big decisions now in the years ahead on how are they going to find this remainder. They have this... Um, deal with agreed with the UK government in 2021. They've got to do it. And if they can't get a handle on their emissions, well, it looks like certain platforms and installations are just going to have to be shut down early. So we don't want that because there's all kinds of domestic energy implications and indeed emissions implications of that happening. So what might be the solution? And we've got a piece up today. Uh, we've been speaking to, well, a number of, of, of people, um, but it kind of revolves around these conclusions from uh, Siemens Energy, which is a market leader in here, and the Net Zero Technology Center in Aberdeen. Their conclusion, that green methanol is the best, quickest win for the sector versus hydrogen, ammonia, partial or full platform electrification in order to get um, the emissions from offshore power generation right down. They did a test some months ago on a aero-derived gas turbine. This is the type that they use in offshore kind of fossil power generation. And they found that they could cut emissions by about 75%, up to 75% by replacing kind of the traditional fossil-based fuels with green methanol. So methanol, a bit like uh, hydrogen in some respects, except obviously it's a liquid and that makes it much more um, versatile, I suppose, and, and a bit easier to store. It can come from various sources, you know, grey, blue, green, etc. Um, but talking about kind of green methanol, we're talking about this, this is e-methanol from renewables or biomethanol, which can come from numerous feedstocks from, you know, cow farts on farms to landfill, wherever you can get CO2 effectively. So, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a, it's, Basically, I think Siemens Energy, according to the Methanol Institute that we spoke to for this, they've got about 160 of these kind of turbines out there in the North Sea. And we're, talk we're not talking brand new things. We're talking about retrofits. The retrofit's fairly minimal. Uh, you're talking about changing your fuel injector system for it, I'm told, by the, the good folks at the NZTC. Relatively simple and straightforward, they tell me. So why aren't we doing this if, that's, if, it's, if it's as easy as that? And they do say it is as easy as that. Read the article. Um, supply seems to be the big problem. It doesn't have to be, but based on what I've heard, supply of this fuel seems to be what's stopping us. Why would I tanker in methanol, green methanol, to my asset three times a month from Denmark, from Holland, Iceland, uh, when I could just use my own assets, you know, fuel gas, seems to be the argument that operators are making here. And there is nothing in the UK as regards e-methanol production. A facility was planned for the Highlands at Nig, at our, our, our old haunts, the Cromarty Firth. Um, that was announced by Global Energy Group and Proman, described to me as the basically the Audi of methanol, um, in 2021. But there's been nothing in, in two years since. No disclosures, no announcements, the Nig oil terminals being decommissioned. Uh, and we did contact all parties involved, but nothing, no response whatsoever as regards that plan. So don't know what's happening there. Um, meanwhile, you've got Denmark, right? So... You, if you've the NZTC basically said, if we've, we've got an operator who have assets in Denmark, we kind of jump because we know we can point to three or four different sites. They can get a supply of this fuel. It would be transported in the same way, basically, that it's it's done for regular fuels now. Um, but you know they they have those facilities there, and if you could look at you know the shipping giant Maersk, for example, they've kind of got a, a share of the methanol supply chain they've built up there. Um, so there's there's so much going on. Um, 
8 million tons of methanol in the market, green methanol in the market by 2027. Uh, I'm told 200 new build vessel orders um, on the go for, for this. But crucially, why you know companies like Maersk have gone with methanol is because it can work for retrofitting, which is what we're talking about here for UK North Sea, as well as your new ships and your new vessels. And we're talking about you know new offshore wind supply vessels are all kind of a lot, many of them are coming in now with dual fuel capability to take methanol. Um, so the market is very much there. Um, and it's a little bit, I, I, I got a sense speaking to the people here about the frustration around why aren't we doing this? We've been saying for seven months, if you want to cut your emissions, um, change your fuel. Um, it gets a little bit complex, but basically because it's a liquid, uh, I'm told you get the optionality to blend here. You can take stepping stones approach. You don't have to go straight to, you know, you could go from uh, diesel to a biodiesel blend. You can go then to a blend of e-methanol, then fully uh, green methanol as that kind of fuel becomes more available. You're dialing into the emissions and the cost as you progress, if you like. Um, so yeah, I think I think the there's a little bit of chicken and the egg approach going on here. That's certainly what uh, uh, Greg Dolan of the, the Methanol Institute told me um, in terms of why we haven't managed to get this going. In terms of e-methanol, that's from renewables. There's a, an electrolyzer question here. You would need that to um, get that production underway. And those are obviously very costly. We don't have any manufacturers in Scotland. But ultimately, you know, if you're looking at your assets being shut down early because you cannot get a handle on your emissions. You need an answer. You need a solution to that problem. Where does the balance weigh up, I suppose, in terms of your costs and getting things going? And obviously, uh, one would expect you would uh, enjoy um, economies of scale if we could get things going properly. So quite an interesting um, issue that seems to be kind of getting picked up in recognition. There are a number of operators that have been looking at this. Uh, it would be great to see some progress, I think, uh, especially given the pressures that the industry is facing. Uh, just, I mean, obviously, as you say, right, it, it feels like uh, like, a, like a real opportunity to cut emissions. But so what, I mean, in terms of sort of what's stopping these operators from going, is it, is it a question of cost? I mean, I suppose importing uh, supplies from somewhere who's kind of better set up for it, obviously, is, is going to be costly. But if if there was domestic production, is is e methanol presumably more expensive than diesel anyway? Yeah, it, it's it's e methanol is is more expensive, and and I think that's in part to do with the obviously the renewables piece. The the point that was made to me was that basically you have these UK ports that are hooked up that are, you know that there will be in fairly close vicinity to of floating to, to offshore winds, right? And there would be a, a a real opportunity there for production of e methanol, a bit like what we were talking about with the port of uh, Nig. Uh, the NIG oil terminal. A bit of frustration around that. But again, this blending thing, right? So you can die, you can you can blend your fuel as you go along. And I'm, I'm told that uh, grey methanol, this is the Methanol Institute's uh, Greg Tolan telling me this, grey methanol, um, it, it's or traditional methanol, I should say, it's it's cheaper than the, a gallon of water in, in the United States. Um, biomethanol, is blended into part of our petrol in the United Kingdom. Now, much of that is imported over from Texas, I'm told. We don't necessarily produce it that much here. But yeah, it does seem that if there was a, basically top of the article and what NZTC said is you would have a platform running on this if there was a production facility like in Aberdeen taking the CO2 um, as a feedstock, but we don't have that. And there is, a, there is other studies going on with the NZTC, a sister project on this very issue of supply um, but but basically, they could dial into the costs. They could blend as they go along. It seems from from what I'm told by the experts, um, and that yeah that that kind of does 
put into question for me a little bit, like, why aren't more companies doing this then, if that's the case? But they tell me that it's, it can be done. So uh, perhaps this is a question of visibility, and hopefully this helps a little bit. But uh, it'd be interesting to see who picks it up. I think um, I think the shipping point that you touched on, I think, will be really critical, because I think methanol, from my understanding, seems to be one of those, you know, as with transitioning towards running, you know, LNG vessels on LNG and gas and, and other e-fuels and things, methanol seems to be for shipping kind of a in the similar territory, right? That you can kind of do these straight swaps. It's it's fairly straightforward to do. You can blend and it's very versatile for that way. So I think more demand from shipping and more demand from kind of around the UK for shipping as well. Maybe then we'll kind of start to see some bunkering, possibly larger scale bunkering before we get into actual production. It's it's a really tricky thing though. It, it hits on this kind of holistic energy system thing again that we keep running into, which is like, there's a, a slight, I don't know, perversity around going, wait, so you want me to to, to tanker in fuel instead of running it from the gas that I already have at my platform to meet these emissions goals. But obviously net, the benefit is still kind of outweighs those drawbacks. But you need everyone to sign on to that to give this this momentum to get it done, right? And that's that's the difficulty. I, I Yeah, I share uh, the NTC's exasperation with you need everyone or no one because no one's going to take a leap on one little production facility, right, if they don't have the market yet. Yeah, it's it's definitely that kind of well, that holistic approach, the chicken and egg stuff, but you know, it's it's it seems like the solutions are out there, but just getting everybody on board to an extent. But you know, the storage, the solutions are there, the transport solutions are there. It just seems like, come on, guys. But anyway, anyway, I'm sure we'll have more on that as we proceed. Um, but we'll move on from emissions and head over to a bit of M and A after this. Have you been searching for the latest sustainability news, developments, insights, and analysis? Why not have it delivered straight to your inbox? Sense of Sustainability is the weekly newsletter for individuals and organizations committed to a more sustainable future. Join the conversation and head to sgvoice.net slash sign up to sign up for our newsletter. Join the conversation and head to sgvoice.com slash sign up to sign up for our newsletter. Okay, uh, Andrew, we've talked quite a lot about operator M&A in recent weeks, I think, but how is the services side looking? Yeah, so last week we obviously talked a lot about the upstream space and the kind of market and uh, the appetite for these deals. Basically around about the same time I had a chat with uh, Patrick Harris at M&A Advisors Kalash uh, about how that's affecting the services sector. So I think it seems to be a really interesting time. Obviously there is there's huge appetite for, for offshore wind around the world. I think that's very clear. It's a huge appetite for offshore wind here in the UK, but the, the steam seems to be knocked a little bit out of it from our uh, recent disappointment in the CFD round, um, which I think is kind of a, a bit of a reset of expectations around the wind industry here. At the same time, um, we've heard from across industry and from, from various portions of it that there's still appears to be some kind of hostility or maybe a bit of skepticism amongst investors and financiers towards any business that's seen to be kind of too geared towards oil and gas. Um, so... What's notable is, despite those two things being said, um, Patrick suggested that the the uh, company sees a lot of appetite for deal making in in the services sector. Um, he's saying appetite is is really bullish, and there are still loads of investors looking for credible targets in offshore wind specifically. Um, and he kind of credits that mainly to the appetite of investors who just want access to the sector. Right? There's there's thematic benefit to having exposure to it. It is obviously long term growth. It ticks boxes in terms of being kind of green and transition focused. Um, and yet there's a lot of export potential. There's a lot of growth potential globally from kind of smaller investments in the UK at the moment. Um, and so at the moment, you know, exposure to that market is still more valuable than 
short-term profitability and, and the short-term headwinds that we see from the likes of the CFD. Um, he did say kind of the caveat to that is, you know, there's some really good niches and, and some profitable um, suppliers and, and service providers in the market. But because of the revenue model, because of the exposure to the CFD and now because of inflation, you know, this, the profit margins in that sector are still slim. Um, and he said it's it's hard to find a business in the wind supply chain that makes any kind of real money that would attract your huge investment appetite. And I think um, even going further across the chain, you know, groups like uh, IMCA, the International Marine Contractors Association, have said as much. You know, there's been a lot of pressure on supply chain in recent years, and they've kind of seen a turn turn away from from renewables work towards oil and gas as as that's kind of resurged and it had a bit more choice in the market. Um, and you know. Offshore contractors and, and a lot of service firms have been under pressure for all of their margins and to cut costs to meet these fixed costs uh, to get these projects in the water. Um, and it f- definitely feels like this year has been a kind of tipping point for that to, to kind of reset the market expectations. Um, but even with all that said, um, Patrick says the main concern really appears to be just a lack of volume and incredible targets at the moment. So there's, there's a big amount of capital out, there's a big amount of appetite out there at the moment, um, and they are looking for kind of credible investments and, and maybe finding them short here. Um, but despite that, again, this this long term play and the long term appetite for wind means there's there's still really high uh, appetite for it. The second dynamic that's kind of at play at services in the moment is uh, a resurging interest in what he termed transition targets. So that's um, businesses that may have historically been focused on oil and gas, which also have a lot of diversification potential into markets like wind or kind of other sectors like nuclear, industrial. Uh, petrochemicals, other other places that they can apply. So mo- mostly a lot of engineering and services firms. Um, and he's saying that's that's an area where M and A is really really hot right now because again investors want to come in and a lot of them, especially private equity firms, he says they want to be kind of part of that journey. They want to fund that journey, sort of re steer the company, potentially write it a little bit, focus on uh, on renewables or on a different uh, sector. And their growth horizons, I guess, which might be kind of five, seven, ten years, kind of fit that transition as well. You can you can turn those businesses around. You can uh, point them in a new direction, and kind of then then is your exit strategy having built those those new markets. Um, interestingly, he, he uh, also mentioned a kind of lot of Middle Eastern capital, which is seeking opportunities in UK oil and gas technology. Um, that's something I've heard from a few different sources, uh, and Ed, I did wonder. You know, there's a big contingent of Northeast firms at APEC, and it's, it's obviously still a huge. Uh, market. So I, I wonder that the, the uh, crossover there, whether you saw a lot of interest in, in the kind of technology that Northeast firms are, are taking across and whether Middle Eastern money is kind of looking to back those or acquire those technologies because they see both the long-term growth potential, but also the kind of appetite for it in, in their market. Um, there's also some kind of UK and European money um, also doing this same kind of transition journey. Um, Patrick pointed to ASCO's sale to Endless a few months back. So that's a, mainly an oil and gas kind of logistics business, but they have, I think, pretty credible uh, transition journey set out and, and a, a net zero journey uh, and also what you know, want to move into more logistics for wind wind farms for other renewables projects. Um, he also said RSK's acquisition of the services from PD and MS. I think that's, that's mainly, mainly engineering services, but again, also on a this transition journey for providing different kinds of services to different kinds of industries. Uh, and we also saw obviously Nesma and Partners, the sort of Saudi contracting firm um they played for kent uh, recently over the summer and acquired that and kent seems to have made a name for itself definitely in the uk it seems to kind of always crop up in in ccs and hydrogen projects and, and expanding uh, across the world as well so we do see that appetite i think reflected in those transactions i think gaming it out though you know in may we obviously saw the uh, u.s investment fund apollo abort their bid for wood after five proposals the suggestion at the time was this was kind of capital discipline from apollo 
and uh, you know wood's lack of exposure to the energy transition I, I don't know whether wood still is too oil and gas focused that seemed to be the narrative at the time but i would have kind of said they they seem to be the prime example of another one of these transition journey firms um their wood's argument was that it was undervalued which may <laughs> you, you never know with these things but maybe maybe played more of a factor in, in that bidding process um but I, I think we do see that out in the market. We do see this appetite. Um, one final thing he also said was just the financing of all, all these deals. So, you know, despite this appetite, um, a lot of buyers get you know, are, are very keen and they get to the kind of committing point. But uh, in order to go to banks to kind of leverage part of these deals, banks are still a, a little bit hesitant. He suggested it wasn't because of this ESG concern, but mainly just because banks have been overexposed to oil and gas. In, uh, in recent years and either have been burned or are part of this general move away from it um, and so are kind of less keen to get involved in these newer transactions. So he's saying that that still is proving to be kind of part of the, the trickiest part of these transactions sometimes is you have a, a willing seller and a willing buyer but then this this bit of in between where you need some debt or some leverage can be tr uh, tricky to, to stump up. Um, so all of that said, all of the headwinds that we see in, in um, in wind and all of the kind of appetite that we see in oil and gas, you know, he thinks there'll still be a lot more wind transactions despite this, um, uh, the lack of targets and, and the kind of slim margins to be made because people see these fundamental growth things. Um, I think next year will be the, the test. We'll see the reset of the CFD for AR6. I wonder whether having hopefully got a grip on some of the inflationary costs that we'll see kind of the developers change their tack and maybe we'll see a little bit more uh, flexibility within them and the supply chain to kind of come together and, and, and make some <laughs> leave some uh, piece of the pie for people to actually have valuable investment propositions yeah. Um, but yeah he, he was bullish on, on all of these uh, long term he would be he was an M&A advisor but um, well <laughs> start, certainly you know there's evidence for that in the market and I thought it was interesting um, given yeah as we were kind of looking at the M&A in the upstream space and, and wondering who might come in I think there, there seems to be an uh, quite a bit of capital out in the market for for the services sector. Yeah, um, the, the the thing that kind of stuck with me to, towards the end of your article there, uh, Andrew. You know, pain at the moment, but if you're basically paraphrasing here, but basically if you stick through it and you're here in a few years' time and you've got this kind of runway of of work, um, then you're going to be well, you're going to be in a fantastic position. So uh, you can kind of see the opportunity there for these. Um, Services firms, um, in that intervening period, to what extent are these companies going to have to keep their hand into, obviously, other areas like oil and gas and that? You know, that's kind of what, what's in my mind. And if, as you say, there's this reticence from lenders around any companies that are kind of exposed or many companies that are exposed to oil and gas um, activity, um, then, you know, how many companies could realistically get through the intervening pain points? I suppose that was kind of my query and thought around it. Yeah, I mean, I think it, I think it depends a lot on the, the type of um, investor as well. I mean, I think that there does seem to be a, a difference between your your private equity, who kind of have, I suppose, set set amounts of capital that they want to invest or are willing to invest, and maybe don't require as much kind of debt and leverage and other financial processes to underpin those bids. Whereas, yeah, if you're if you're another firm, maybe doing a buyout or something like that, there, there's maybe a different financial aspect to that. At which point you might have a lot more scrutiny of that transaction, which may, as he said, you know, affect banks' willingness to lend to it. Um, but I think certainly it was, it was interesting as well to hear that kind of Middle East technology play, because that is something that I've, I've heard from a few people. And I think, you know, offshore Europe and Adipec, we've, we've seen that, you know, 
money coming in externally to kind of keep these businesses here, which is obviously good. Um, but the long term goal for those is, is that to kind of t- take all that technology and, and, you know, have it centered in the Middle East? Is, is there always going to be a market for it here? Or do they become export businesses? I think there's a lot of interesting dynamics there. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think you're right. I think, I mean, I said, you know, sort of my, my incredibly partial view for just sort of pottering around Adepec was was, was clearly that there is uh, a lot of uh, a lot of technology, technology kind of coming out of of Scotland, right? That is obviously a, a kind of continuing interest um, to the Middle East, and 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 the Middle East obviously has the the, the resources to kind of make those moves. I suppose the um, the challenge is always around, you know, as you say, where the future is, right? I, I think one of the things that uh, you see throughout the Middle East, uh, you know, things like you know, sort of in-country value and and, and just ways in which to kind of try and keep those kind of contract wins domestic, right? So there's, you know, whenever kind of contractors kind of turn up, then it's always a kind of a question about, you know, what are the re- what are the rewards going to be for, uh, you know, sort of the, 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 the Emiratis or the Saudis or whoever. So um, I think, yes, yeah, so I would say there is, there is, there is kind of continued interest um, in, in buying that technology, but I don't know whether that means that um, those, manufacturing facilities or jobs or whatever would would necessarily stay in Scotland obviously there is interest in creating and stimulating uh, domestic economies i think i think yeah maybe just to end on that point as well that there, we have heard you know i think recently that there's uh, maybe a hesitance around investors to invest in in uk scottish smes and that that still continues to be a break i think we don't have this kind of venture capital mindset or or industry certainly in the same way that a lot of other places do and that you know, if we want if we want these small firms to succeed, you know, someone's going to have to stump up some money, and it, it may end up being people from outside of the UK. In, in which case, there seems to be a, a sense that you have a little bit less control over how, the success story of those businesses, right? That they they cease to then be UK focused or your UK success stories if if the technology is held for a few years and then moved to to another production facility. So I think it's it's a bit of a warning there as well as to you know if if we want to make sure that these are successful UK businesses, there's a bit of <laughs> forthcomingness needed i think from the finance sector and a bit of more flexibility around this exposure esg oil and gas play i think yeah quite literally need to take ownership don't you yeah i mean absolutely great 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 point to end on there andrew um that is it for this latest episode of energy voice out loud uh inspired by ed's adepec escapades i'm going to try to book up some winter sun now uh, ideally not in the vicinity of a conference center but we'll see thank you to ed and andrew for joining me i've been alistair thomas and thanks for listening Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.